Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Antony Rossi. In this, our second year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. and welcome back. This is Strength to be Human. I'm your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, poet and playwright. This is going to be episode 137, and we're going to be calling this The Agents in the Writing Process. So yes, we're going to actually have a show about agents and the various different writing phases out there, or writing genres, or writing topics, or whatever you want to call those. There's going to be various ones in this particular show. We're going to talk about the regular, regular books, We'll talk about teleplays, we'll talk about screenplays, and we're going to definitely talk about even literary work. Sometimes agents can be valuable in these things, and sometimes they're not. So we'll, we'll go over that, and you'll be able to see how this whole uh, all this works out. Hopefully this will be helpful if folks have had some questions over, over the course of time. I've used them in the past, so I have some experience on a number of these levels. Uh, not so much anymore. I don't really have a, a big need for them anymore, although occasionally on the screenplay angle I do. But everything else, I, I don't really have a need for them. But they're still uh, they're still necessary out there, and if you're interested, you have every right to explore that. Now, with that said, there's a couple of things I'd like you to, to put in context right away, okay? First thing is this. Even though I have experience on a lot of these angles and a lot of these areas, it doesn't mean that what I'm saying is the only way for you to go. Okay, I'm giving you options. I'm giving you real facts, and I'll point it out what's a fact versus what's my opinion or what's an option, and and, and that's what I'm going to do on the show. Okay, but it doesn't mean that it's the Bible of all things regarding agents. There's still lots of things that could be up in the air. There's still lots of gray area on some things. Some things are real concrete, and we'll talk about those. Okay, all right. Let's start here. Now, those of you like myself who are poets, well, it's very rare to actually get any kind of agent involved in poetry. Even if you have a big name in poetry, it's still pretty rare because oftentimes the presses themselves will, will, will be able to take care of you. You can talk to them directly. So it's not that un unusual to do that. And uh, and I'm sorry to say that the old joke is if you're good, if you're a poet that's good enough for agents, then why pay them when you could just go directly to the publisher? Because that's what happens. You're losing, you're losing money by doing that. In many ways, you're not looking at making a big advance as it is these days, so you have to consider that. So it's it's still extremely rare. It's not very common. In fact, if you ever look through agent guides, and we'll talk about it, like writers' markets, you know, the books you can buy at the bookstore that they're hardcover, and they, they often will have one about publishers, they have one about agents, and they're very valuable resources, by the way. It's the only thing I would really endorse on this show regarding places to go. On, on agents for the most part, okay? Um, you'll see it. Lots of them will actually literally say no poetry or no short story, but things like that. Sometimes they'll literally say no literary because they only want commercial stuff. So you have to always be careful about when you're looking up agents to really, really, really research it because it's not like making the mistake of, of sending your literary work to a bunch of magazines that you didn't really check out. The worst thing I'm going to do is, is reject you and that's it. But you don't want to waste time for agents in places like this. Because remember, uh, when you're ready to do the right thing, you're going to go to the other person, they're going to remember you. And they're going to like, isn't that the ding-dong that you know sent me a children's book and all I do is science fiction? So that's what you have to be careful about. And you really do. Okay? It's really the same uh, part of most literary stuff. You often don't need an agent. You can go to a a small press or even an academic press, and you know, and if they like your work, you can get published without ever having to worry about, you know, dealing with the agent on on that level. So, we'll skip all the literary stuff because, for the most part, it's it's not really necessary. Okay. Now, if you put together a full a full literary book that's nonfiction, uh, yeah, you might actually uh, need an agent. It doesn't necessarily mean that you actually would want one because remember, you could still do the same thing as with fiction with poetry, send it directly. After you make some, you know, inquiries at, at a regular publishing place, a small, a reputable one, an academic one, you can still do that. But, you know, 
if you really want to go the agent route, uh, especially with literary things, I, I had spoken to a, a writer recently about a memoir, and I've done a, a few other uh, assistance folks that have done uh, manuscripts that were either uh, uh, either memoirs or just nonfiction in general, and they felt an agent was necessary. And in some cases, it, it really is, especially if you're looking to get something you know, in, in, in a soft cover book and, and get a, a, a wider spread in, in bookstores as well, then you really have to have an agent then if that's going to be your goal, okay? Now, let's put a couple of things in perspective over here right away, okay? An agent is somebody that's ultimately a salesperson, okay? So when we're talking about you going to see an agent or going to make contact with an agent, there's a few things that I'm already doing on the show, presupposing. Presupposing you have the book done, that it's been edited, it's ready to go. That's what I'm presupposing because I'll tell you right now, if it's not, it's a very bad idea to be contacting an agent. Particularly if you get the horrifying answer of, you know, we'd like to see that. Give us your full book, your marketing plan, your biography, Okay, and your social media uh, your presence. And you're like, uh, oh, my God, I, I've maybe done a quarter of it or something. Well, believe me, if someone ever gives you an invitation, you already need to be ready because it's not like you have three, four months to get back to them. They'll think you're crazy and you'll never talk to you again. All right? They're pressed for time. They're out there trying to hustle and do things. That's who they are. They are salesmen. They are saleswomen. That's who they are. They're not editors, Okay. Many of them, believe it or not, many of them are not even writers. They know how to read because <laughs> they tend to be very well educated. They, they, they're networking throughout the whole industry, okay? And so they know a, a good read from a not, but they're not often writers. And, and they don't really have patience for, for, for silliness and, and for delays and for you not being prepared. So I'm going to presuppose here that you're prepared. So if you want to keep listening to the show... That's great. Maybe it's a little warning for you about, let me get my uh, ducks in a row before I go around and listen to this uh, Asian advice, or at least before I do anything about the Asian advice that, that Mark's providing on the show. All right? If you can do that, you can do yourself a world of good. Okay? All right. Next. And we'll get this out of the way right now. Agents are just like publishers. There is the golden rule. They don't ask for fees. They don't get paid. They're there to take a commission on something they're trying to sell for you. And when it's sold, that's when they get their money, when you get your money. Okay? It's really ultimately no different than a publisher. It's also the ultimate red warning flag. Okay? Hey, man, this is uh, Joel, um, Jimmy Bob. And, uh, yeah, I got a lot of contacts over in the uh, publishing industry. And uh, I, I like the, the sample you sent me. So uh, why don't you send me that whole book and, and $5,000 and we get on the path over here to making you a success. All right, that's a load of baloney, okay? Understand this. And oftentimes, I don't often talk in absolutes. I leave a lot of room for here and for there. You have to leave a lot of room for gray areas sometimes. That's just life. Whether I like that or not, that's just the way it is. There are certain absolutes. Where this is concerning the agents, it is an absolute, okay? The Association of Authors' Representatives, that's the official organization that agents belong to. They must belong to this to even be able to work with a publisher because they're going to ask for the credentials right away. That's how that works. You can't be an agent without being a part of those folks. Well, guess what? You can't be a part of those folks by asking for fees under any circumstances, any no reading fees, no evaluation fees, no marketing fees, no I had to go lunch and, and use a photocopier fees, no fees whatsoever. So if you ever come across an agent, whether that person came out of the internet or came out of writer's market, a, a book that's actually pretty good about getting these people, uh, or anywhere else, somebody recommended somebody, you're talking to this person, they're like, yeah, I need 600 for this and 500 for that. Tell them have a good day and move on, period. They're not real. They're frauds, and that's the end of the story. And guess what? If for some incredible chance they actually are one of those members of the association author representatives, well, guess what? They're violating their contract with them. You can report them. They'll, they'll be removed, and that'll be the end of their career. You can't be an agent with those folks there, period. Uh, that means a legitimate agent, 
not this phony baloney stuff. All right. So that's automatically something you always have to keep in your mind. Okay. There is no such thing as fees. There is no nothing you have to worry about. You just need to be prepared. That's all. You need to have that book ready to go once you make a contact. All right. Now, making contact isn't terribly difficult. Unlike other other genres, and we'll we'll talk about them. Um, uh, mainly uh, teleplays and uh, plays and screenplays, okay? Even though there are some email contacts with agents, okay? I, I, I don't advise it. It's really not advisable. You're over here working your butt off on a long project over here. You want somebody to invest time in you because, remember, they get paid by commission. So anytime they're doing anything involving you, they're investing their time that you're not paying them for. That means everything from reading a letter to looking at where you've sent them, all of that. That's their time. They're sitting there checking this out. That's what they do for free. So keep that in mind. You got to have some respect for that, all right? With that understanding, okay, most agents prefer to actually get something in the regular snail mail. I, I know we're in the digital age right now, but this is still one of the places where that's the best way for you to make contact, okay? Just put a cover letter together. It's not terribly difficult. There's nothing complex about it. There's no secret formula or anything, okay? You'll need somebody to help you write it. I'm Jimmy Johnson. I got a book about trucks out in the countryside and, and how each one has a history and blah, blah, blah. I'm an expert mechanic. Um, I, I got published in, in auto mechanic magazines, and I got this book. It's about 600 pages. And it has this and it has that. Um, I can give you a sample if you like. Um, you know, please give me a call. Please send me something back. Please email me even. You can even do that on the return. You'd be surprised how people, you, you mail them stuff and then they email you back. Fine. Nothing wrong with that. That's really the best way to present yourself, and I feel, in the agent situation. Now, you're going to have some agents. Now, keep this in mind. When you read about an agent, and you read about some of the specifications, they're going to have certain things that they say that you really have to take seriously, okay? So if they literally say, you know, we would prefer our contact through email, here's our special email address, and these are the things we'd like to see, fine, then that's what you need to do. I still say, send them the letter. That's what I still say. Because that's what I did when I got my first book published. Now, it wasn't as popular, the email, back in the early 90s as it is now, okay? But I still did it that way anyway, even on the ones that said that. And I was actually pretty surprised that in many instances, they were emailing me back. And I'm like, what? Where's my letter at? <laughs> but that's what happened. I think it sends a better message about who you are and what you're trying to do and how serious you are. Because quite frankly, you got to now type this thing up. You should put it on some decent paper. I actually even recommend one of the one of the uh, thinner stock papers. Make it look really, really fancy. You know, print it out and, and mail it to them. So you got to go get the envelope. You got to get stamps. I can't tell you how many writers that don't even have envelopes or stamps in the house anymore. That's how much you know, we've gone past that in many instances. And, and this is not a, a judgment or anything. That's just the facts of what many tell me. I still have some for all kinds of reasons, so I don't have a problem with that. But that's what you would have to do. It still sends them an important message, okay? They get something from you about your situation. I don't care how corny your um, your cover letter is or how even dopey your project might sound, all right? And I don't mean that in, in any kind of bad way. I'm, I'm just trying to demonstrate a point here. You're still going to impress somebody that's saying this person believes in their project this much that they're willing to go that extra mile. They're willing to put this on some stock paper. They're willing to write me an actual cover. Here's all the contact information. This is what the project's about. Some cases, you could even put a mini, like, mini chapter in there or something, if you'd like. Sometimes they'll tell you they don't want that, and then you have to take that seriously. You can still send them a, a, a cover letter out of the blue. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes they might say in the descriptions, though, we don't want the sample chapter until we're ready to actually give you a, a proposal, invitation, that sort of thing. Great. All right. Some will be, oh, some actually demand that. Some of them don't demand that, which means you can send it, and some say no. You got to follow that, okay? But I say it sends a good message. Remember, in the end, what we're talking about an agent, we're talking about a salesperson. They know all about 
how to put that good step forward and how to make that thing happen great. Because that's what they do. They're there to sell this project to somebody else who now has to make a decision, who's heard about all these other projects, possibly even in the same day, God knows in the same week. So that's something that impresses people. I suggest you do that. It's not some golden rule. It doesn't mean that the email won't work. It doesn't mean you won't get accepted someplace. I just think that it's, it's a better message and a better way of doing things. It's not that much hard work to do, you know, and if you want to put your best, very best forward, foot forward when you're trying to do this project and you're trying to get getting this thing out there to somebody, why not do the, the I feel, the first-class way of doing it? So that, that's what I recommend, okay? Actually got compliments on it, too, believe it or not. Even on the people that rejected me. Hey, we appreciate uh, your preparation on all this and, and, and your contact method. I mean, they actually had comments about that. You know, it's good because you, you establish a rapport with people, even if they reject you, because remember, uh, you might have another project that they might be interested in one day. No one says you can't go back to some, another agent with something else down the line, and they're going to remember you. Oh, yeah, that's the person that does this, this classy thing. Every time somebody remembers something about you, that's a positive thing that's going to help you. I know you can go back you know, to your basement someplace and say, oh, that's a bunch of crap. They're not reading my writing. None of that crap matters. Well, it all matters. It matters your bio. It matters your presentation. It matters the strength of the sample you did. It matters the contact you have with them. God forbid they call you on the phone one day. You don't want to sound like some weirdo. You know, you got to sound professional. All of this stuff matters. Again, here is a stranger investing their time in you for free. Okay? All right. That rent in that office ain't getting paid, uh, you know, with, with, with magical fairy dust. Okay? Either it's their internet bill or their phone bill or their fees to be a part of the association of author representatives. All of that stuff costs money. So just try to keep that in mind, all right? Now, wherever concerns books, not just nonfiction books, but books in general, sometimes of various genres and even subgenres, they have certain things that you have to keep in mind seriously, okay? Some agents will specialize in a whole bunch of things. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that because you can still send somebody that. But you have to understand one thing about that sort of thing. When you're dealing with Joe Blow agent and they represent like 17,000 different genres out there, remember in the back of your mind when you're sending something to them, I'm okay to send this because this is in the, the category that I, that I have assumed that I have. And we'll talk about that in a moment about the kind of category you should have or at least have one, okay? Because it's real important. You can't get gray on something like that. You really need to know. But let's say you you figured out that um, you got a fantasy novel, okay? And you see fantasy is one of the many things the person has dealt with. What you don't know, okay, is unless they're willing to actually give you a bunch of details right there on the spot in terms of their description, and many of them don't, they're only just talking about the highlights, you don't know how much of a fantasy background the agent has or how much they've sold. You just don't know that. You might learn later on if they invite you. They might be able to tell you that, you know, but it's not really something that you can like ask somebody. There's certain things that you shouldn't ask agents just because it's considered impolite. Remember, pissing off an agent is not a good idea when you're trying to get them on your side. So, you know, putting in some, uh, you know, a cover letter that says, uh, yeah, um, I, I saw that you represent a fantasy, but I don't really know how many fantasy titles you sold. So I hope this is going to be good for you. But you, you don't want to sound doubtful. You don't want to sound negative. You don't want to sound like you're questioning him to death. But it is something real that's going to be in the back of your mind. And quite frankly, the agent that has a billion genres might not have a whole lot in each one. Where the agent that simply says, I only do fiction, uh, excuse me, I only do fantasy and I only do science fiction. And that's it. Well, you know that <laughs> at least uh, the 50-50 chance that you know this is something serious that they're sending out there. They're probably doing a good amount of each one of those genres. That's probably a better statistical and other chances for somebody to maybe take your work seriously because you know now that if this is all they're doing, that's how they're paying the bills. If they're paying the bills that way, they got themselves a track record. You're probably going to see in their description uh, a couple of fantasy titles and a couple of science fiction titles. You're going to notice that. They're going to put that out there. It's their way to advertise, check me out because I've done this and I've done that. Okay? So that's the pros and cons on dealing with somebody who's really wide and then somebody that's really narrow. Okay? The narrow is that's all that person's going to do. 
So, you know, if if you wind up having a nonfiction book that you're trying to pitch at the moment, obviously sending it over to the fantasy to the science fiction region is a very bad idea. You're just wasting your time, your postage, and everything else, including wasting theirs. So researching this is really important. That's why that writer's market gives you a lot of detail, really asks those folks questions so it helps the authors make some better choices. Now, what I mentioned before is this. I mentioned to a writer that was dealing with a, with a memoir situation. I told this writer, I said, listen, it's not a good idea to target a memoir just with agents that claim that they've dealt with memoirs before. Because you believe it or not, even though it's a legitimate genre, it's not that big of a genre. So you're going to see plenty of agents that don't even list it, but they'll list it nonfiction. I say send it over to them anyway, because like I mentioned, like I mentioned now, like I mentioned to that writer, and we'll talk about this a little bit further. There's really an unseen market of agents out there that you don't get to check out. They might not show up in writers' uh, marketplace book. They might not show up on the internet. They're not going to be at conferences because they don't care. They already have a workload that they're happy with. Oftentimes, all they do is work on a lot of referrals from other people, which could be you. That person could literally, before they even communicate to you, say, you know, this sounds like it's pretty tangible, man. I think we could do something with this, but I'm not into it. But guess what? My friend Laura, who I had lunch, lunch with last week, she might want to check this out. This is something I think she's done before. And you don't know who the hell Laura is from Adam. But they've now provided you with what I call the unseen market. It's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an awesome example of something that can happen. It's happened before to lots of people. So it's not a bad idea to look at it that way. To try to find your own way to send things out. As long as you're not breaking anybody's rule, then there's no rule for you to follow other than try to get your message out there the best you can. It's not obviously the same for other genres. Uh, a perfect example would be what they call YA or young adults. Those are like those tween novel things. It's sort of like for teenagers. You can't send that kind of a book, you know, to a fantasy agent because they're going to pretty much say that their fantasy is adult. Unless they say YA fantasy and fantasy, you can't send it to that person. You're wasting theirs and your time. You can't send it to a, a, a agent that just deals with a lot of children's literature. YA is not children's literature. As somebody who's 13 years old is not a child anymore. So you got to keep that in mind. You have to remember, you're supposed to be knowing your market. So if you send it to the wrong place, yeah, you, you're wasting your time. You're embarrassing yourself. They're not going to be too pleasant about that. Don't think they're going to say, you know, I'm going to send this over to Jim because he's really perfect for your genre. Now they're going to be pissed off and either never respond to you or send you an email. You know, can you read the guidelines, please? So, again, not helpful. All right. So that. That birth I'm talking about between uh, nonfiction and, and memoir or even biography, it's there. It's some gray area there, and you can do that. But all the other ones, you really have to follow with the, with the agents taken because it makes no sense to send anything, no matter how good it is, to an agent that has no contacts with that genre in, in, in the marketplace out there. It's a bad idea. So some things have to be targeted, and that's a perfect example of that. Now, keep in mind, okay, that when you put together that cover letter, it's really, really, really important that you try to do some research to mention some titles out there already that have sold. Uh, I, this is going to be some hard news for some, a lot of people to take. But guess what? Agents and publishers, they're not out there to do the new. They're not out there to do the fantastic. They're not out there to do the super awesome. They're out there to do whatever the hell is done before that's made the money. That's what they are. Hollywood's the same way. So there's nothing different about that. So when they're asking you to do this, first of all, they're asking you to acknowledge that there's a marketplace out there and that those things have sold before. That's what they're looking at. So they want to know, you know, really, you got this uh, this uh, young adult novel you know, about uh, giant mosquitoes from the planet Xeon coming down, infecting people and turning them into zombies, and then they use them as soldiers to invade another planet. They like to know, you know what novels along that line have also been put out there and sold. So you can now say, my novel is similar to Zombie Ants Part 2, or my novel is really similar to Gay Purple Aliens Part 5. All right? That's what they want. That's, unfortunately, a sad truth. 
Okay, you can't go over and literally put together this novel and literally tell these folks, um, you know, this thing is so damn unique. All right, that there is nothing a book out there like that. So um, I like you to check it out because of that reason alone. Okay, because guess what? As they start laughing, you'll still be able to hear the laughter even you even though you go to bed that night, you'll still hear it ringing in your ears. Okay, no one's gonna take anything like that seriously. It doesn't even matter if what you're saying is the truth. It won't matter. You're actually telling these people, oh, my God, I don't think I can sell that book. That's literally what they're hearing. That's code for them. Let's stay away. This person is trying to be a genius. This person is trying to be original. Well, guess what? All they're trying to do on the other side of this, of this conversation is I'm trying to pay the rent. Okay? I'm trying to get some TV dinners in my house. Okay? I got a, I got a BMW payment to make. All right? My second house needs another roof. Let's rock and roll here. That's what they're thinking. All right? No, it doesn't sound like writing. It doesn't sound like literature. God knows it doesn't sound like art. But we're talking about the publishing business. All right? Not the publishing arts. The publishing business. That's what you've just entered into. Keep in mind also that it's extremely important. I've talked about this before at another level, but it's still it's still an important thing to revisit, especially with agents. You need to have already a social media presence. Okay? So I'm sorry. If you're an 86-year-old lady who's wrote this cool book about cats that become detectives in the forest, which actually, I like cats. I think that's a kind of a cool idea. I'll, I'll go with it, but I'm not an agent. And honestly, you could tell them all about how you have some media presence and you're doing some cat stuff and, you know, you know a lot about cats. And, and here's some examples of cat books that sold, and I think you could do well with mine as well. They're not going to take any of that stuff seriously, Okay. So you got to keep that in, in mind. Now, there are also some special situations on other genres as well. All right? Children's genre is a real, real important one here. You're only going to have so many agents that really get involved in that because oftentimes children's books have to do with pictures as well. They can be picture-type children's books, but sometimes have required that. And you have to look really carefully if you're really one of those children's authors, how you want to handle the situation based on the agent you pick. Each one is going to have different criteria. You're going to have some agents that say, we just want you to pitch the project to us in writing. Give us some ideas about how you think this is going to do in the marketplace. What kind of social presence you have out there in the media? What kind of biography do you have? What kind of writing credits you've done? And, um, We'll get back to you about the art. Some don't want the art. Some say, if we do this and get you over there, they have an artist in-house, so you don't have to worry about it. Some are like, you got to have the art with it, and then you got to figure out, are you the artist to do this? Or do you need to contract somebody else to do this? What kind of expense that's going to be? You also have to deal with some situations, believe it or not, where a lot of publishers' houses, it's not really that well-known of a, of a subject, They've laid off or, or, or gotten rid of many of the artists. Some of them are friends of mine, so I know this to be a fact. Which means that they have to contract themselves. So it, you could actually run into a scenario, believe this or not. Here you go. You get an agent. They find a publishing house for you. They contract the art. Their agent gets you a deal to get this book published. Now, let's say there's no advance in this situation. Most times with children's books, unless you're really super famous or you're proven to really sell some books, there is going to be no advance, okay? So I'm not just giving you a, a hypothetical. You, you're probably not going to see any money up front, okay? Fine, all right? But you might have a scenario where they've hired, okay, an artist, a contract artist to do this, and guess what? They're not paying that person that flat fee. That person is actually going to be part of the royalty situation. So you could actually be in a scenario as a children's artist, a children's children's author where you're looking at 15% that's going to come out from the agent, maybe another 20% from the artist. So before you even see your first check, you're already giving away, okay, like almost 45, 50%, almost the entire half of, of what you're getting is going between the agent and, and the artist. It's very well possible. Now, I know with uh, an agent, you're looking at the standard fee of 15%. That's standard these days now. It used to be 10% about 30 years ago. It's now 15 okay? Uh, where the artist is, 
it, it's such a it's such a big unknown. Nobody even knows exactly when when you're in that scenario what they're actually charging. I, I haven't been able to get a straight answer from anybody about this. Sometimes they're actually not even allowed to disclose it. So you could be looking at 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 percent. Who the heck knows? But which, what they're doing is they're bringing this person on board, making them do all the work for you, not giving them any money because they're promising that you're going to be able to, you're going to be able to, to pay them from the cut of your money. And that's literally what happens when that check comes. Okay. And this is what a lot of authors don't know. When that check comes, it's divided out. It's divided out. If you happen to have a press agent, that person's getting money, usually 5%. If you have an agent, that's 15% right there. The artist person might be getting some money. So literally, this checks, you'll, you'll get a, a whole ledger in the, in the mail of, of the money you got and the money you're going to get taxed on because they don't take any money out. You're going to get taxed on this later on. So you have to actually keep the books wise. But that'll literally be a breakdown. So you can literally have two or three uh, people literally in your pocket taking money out. That's just normal. And it's really normal for children's books uh, in this kind of situation. Now, some of them actually contract um, and don't do that. Play them a flat fee because they feel it's worthwhile. Some of them still have a few on staff. But I'm sorry to say that the um, presses that have artists on staff, they tend to be the smaller ones or sometimes the ones that that's all they do is children's books. So to them, it, it makes financial sense to have somebody on board so they can make the art uniform and, you know, they can give better directions to everything that's going on. And, and uh, of course, that makes good business sense to me as well. But the bigger houses, it's much, much harder now. They just they got rid of them all. They just don't think it's worth it for them. They, they find it's cheaper to, to, to get something that way. And that's what they do. I've known in many instances, believe this or not, um, where you get to a big publishing house and let's say that you, you've got a book that actually is worthy, okay, of an advance. When I mean worthy, I'm not saying about whether you're a good writer or not. I mean, in terms of how they look at it commercially. It's, oh my God, we think we can do massive business with this incredible book this girl has done. So they're willing to give you an advance and, and the agent was able to get that done. They might actually hire a cover person and literally already deduct that money. I mean, literally, they might literally do that. So they might literally say, all right, we're going to give you $25,000. All right, we're going to take 5000 back of that. And we'll give you the, the, the receipt showing that. And that's going to go to the cover artist of this book. Okay? They probably even have the hired person yet. They're just holding that money back, ready to pay them. Because that's what they're doing with your money. Okay? And, of course, when, sec, the, when, the, when the check comes, the other part of it, ready to the agent, and you got whatever was left. So, like I said, from 25000 you think about that. They've taken back 5000 for a cover artist. That leaves you twenty. And then uh, of the twenty thousand, fifty percent is going to fifteen percent is going to the agent. So that's how the math works on something like that. So there's not too many to have those kind of uh, artists any longer, and they don't really allow the artists to to do it like a small press would do, where you can actually submit your own art as long as it's you know professional and acceptable. You don't really have a whole lot of say in a lot of this. It's just the way it is, and you have to you have to live with that, whether you, whether you like it or not. Now, keep in mind this. In many instances, uh, for uh, especially books that could possibly have, you know, a movie potential, okay, you're looking at more. So if you do a science fiction book that, let's say they gave you a small advance, okay, and let's say, of course, the agent's taking the 15% and all of that, and, and the book's selling and it sells, it sells well enough, uh, a studio could actually be interested in the book. And at that point, you already signed a contract with this agent, so oftentimes they could get 20 to 30% automatically. And, and, and many times I haven't even done anything. And I'm not trying to smirch any agents. But the truth of the matter is, it's not like the agent was actively out there telling Hollywood, this book is awesome. You've got to buy the movie rights. They don't often do that at all. In fact, you'd be surprised how they don't do anything. They're too busy hustling around getting other books to the publishers so they can get their money. Okay. Nobody can wait around for two, five, six, seven years, whatever it's going to take, if you ever even get any movie right offers. So they're not, they're not dealing with that. It makes no sense for them to waste their time pitching stuff that might never happen. It's up to Hollywood and how they want to handle that, not up to the agents. They don't often do that, but they're still getting that money. Okay, some some agents can be persuaded. Okay, in many instances that you could sign that separately. But oftentimes, you only could do that after you already had a book with them. On that initial offering, if they accept you, 
it's not like you can say, listen, I want to do this with you, but if there's any movie things down the line, I'd like to talk about that separately. And then when we get to that, we can, we can discuss that. A lot of times you just have to sign a contract. It includes all of this. After you've got a book done, and if the book is done decent enough where the agent thinks they could go sell another book from you, at that point, you can actually say something like that without anyone being offended because it's straight business. Listen, I appreciate your help. God knows I'm, I'm, I'm loyal to you and what you've done for me. But uh, at this point, I, I like to have something separate on, the, on these movie rights. Okay, So either we come up with a separate figure that we can both agree on or it's just, we just leave it out, period. And if that ever comes about, then we'll discuss it and, and make an agreement right there on the spot. You could do that. I recommend that more than not. It's not something you're gonna get rid of the first time, but you could definitely get rid of the second time and you know and such a, a going forward. So it's something to really consider. Okay. Now these these amounts run concurrently, okay? So if you have a scenario, all right, where the agent has now been notified by the studio, we want to buy the movie rights, okay? That agent, okay. They can actually get 50% of the money and still get another 20% on top of that. So they can literally get 35% of the money from the movie rights. That's the reason why I like to folks to consider negotiating that separately whenever they can. Because at that point, you can literally have a separate thing saying, you're not getting anything other than what we agree on, period. So if that's 12.5%, that's all you're getting. You're not getting your 15% or anything like that. You're just going to get this because we're not talking about a book here. We're talking about movie rights, something entirely separate. You can separate that. Save yourself a bundle of money. Put more money in your pocket. It's just not so easy to do on the first one because, again, you don't want to be over there offending anybody, and you certainly don't want to seem like you're being you know, un ungrateful things like because they do a lot of work. So, and, I, and I'm not mocking them. I'm not judging them, and I'm certainly not giving them a hard time. This is business. So we're talking business here, okay? We're not talking art. You're not worried about somebody's feelings. You're all worried about money you can be put in your pocket. Plus, you got a family, you got things you want to do. You know, giving somebody an additional 20% of something uh, of, uh, could be a decent paycheck. Movie rights on the average are anywhere from, uh, from $100,000 to a $1 million. Serious money. Some people, they actually get more money from the movie rights than they get from the, from the darn book. I'm, I'm not joking. It happens. So. Keep that in mind, okay? Now, the agents, agents for other genres like plays or teleplays or screenplays, it's an entirely different scenario here, okay? We'll, we'll talk about drama because it's kind of brief, all right? More times than not, a playwright, even a successful playwright, doesn't even need an agent. They just talk directly to the to the to the theater houses. Sometimes, at that point, if they've done enough business, they could even get a talent agency, and therefore the talent agency becomes their agent. They don't have a separate agent. It's not all that common to even have one, uh, unless a person's really sick, you know, in terms of their health, and they just need some help, or you know, they're really old-fashioned and they've done this thing forever, and that that's how they do it. But these days, it's something unnecessary. I've never had to have one. I've gotten plays sold. I continue to do so. Don't have to have one. Don't have to share my money, which isn't a lot, by the way. So it's another reason why I don't want to share it. I don't say that it's not something you can really explore. You can. But you got to remember something. When you're dealing with an agent that also accepts plays, I mean, they're going to be looking for the most broadest, commercial, common denominator play that you could possibly put out there. And not looking for something deep, dark, and intellectual, okay? They're only getting so much money of this thing. You're not going to even get that much of an advance. It could take months or years for the thing to even get produced. If it's a hit, it could be a couple of years before anyone sees any money. So they're taking a huge chance on that. So they're not going to want to do anything unless they feel it's going to be something that's really, really easy to sell, really something that can be produced pretty quickly for everybody to make a peso. That's why another good reason why they're not good for that, because in many instances, they're really in a rush for that. And I don't blame them, because I understand the market and how it works with theaters. So they're really not that necessary in, in, in theater, okay? But I'm not giving you a total no. I'm just saying that generally they're not necessary, all right? Now, teleplays, meaning the, those are pretty much the, the, the drama scripts that are done for a television show, whether it's a half an hour or, or, or an hour, or sometimes even longer if it's a miniseries. But those 
oftentimes will need an agent eventually because you can still, and we talked about this, and there's going to be some overlap on that money show I did about, you know, morality of money and writing, okay? So, and I can't help that. It's just necessary for, for this show as well, okay? There is going to be some overlap. Keep this in mind, all right? There are plenty of times and plenty of opportunities where somebody could write a spec script for a show that really, really they're good in. Let's say you're really, really an expert on Star Trek or, you know what I mean? Or, or, or maybe you like, you know, one of the comedy shows or something like that or one of the dramas. You just know the characters very well. Well, guess what? You can spec script, send something over, you can get that picked up. You don't even have to be a guild member, which, of course, would be better because you get more money that way. Or you don't even have to have an agent. They don't even care. They'll just give you a couple thousand. And it's your first sale. You'll be jumping up and down, going to the bank, thinking you're rich. After a while, if you keep doing that, you're going to want an agent because you now have a track record. You want to be part of the guild, which costs about $2,500 a year, by the way, because now you can ask for more money. I got this track record. I've done this. I got agent here. Boom, boom, boom. You could do that. If you feel like that's all you want to do is spec script all over the universe and you can sell enough of them, you can actually make a, a, a good amount of money doing that. But ultimately, what you have to keep in mind is this. Most television writing is not focused or built around the spec script. You can't afford to wait for stuff like that to happen. It happens all the time, but you can't afford to be waiting for something that consistent because you get a show produced and you're getting it bankrolled. You, you, you live within the budget. You have a time constraint. You have a network that doesn't want to hear anything other than this crap to be delivered on time because I got to go shoot this on the network. More important now than ever before because there are so many networks out there producing against each other for competition, all right? So the true path of any teleplay writer, or if you want to call them TV writers, is to be on the staff. And that is a huge problem because it's not a job you can do remotely. You have to be there. You have to be in the room. And it's a different experience than when you're doing a spec script. Because when you're doing a spec script, you're in your house. You're the only one doing it. You don't have to listen to anybody else other than what you feel is right in that script. They might ask for a few changes here and there. You go do that, but they're going to give you a check. All right, cool. When you're on the staff, it's not the same thing anymore. You don't get to write the script. You're just another voice and maybe pieces of it, an idea here and there, and other people put something together. In the end, that script, when it's, when it's shown on TV and when it gets put on the credits, is you and like four or five other people. Nobody ever knows who's what anymore. When you put down your resume later on, yeah, uh, I was um, uh, one of the uh, hired uh, writers uh, from uh, you know uh, 2014, 2017, uh, Scooby-Doo Attacks Manhattan. It got canceled later on, but this is my experience. I, I was part of 48 episodes. That's literally what you do, and that's how you would be sold by the agent to the next job, which is, again, being there. Being there, not so easy. There's only a few bare places. Sometimes it's straight out in Hollywood and Los Angeles. Sometimes it's in New York. But you don't have too many locations where people do this on a regular basis. you got to be someplace. You can't just phone it in like a spec script. So that life is much more difficult for most people. I mentioned in the um, Morality of Money episode about that woman I had known that she just couldn't make that choice. She couldn't move her, her family and go out living over there. And, and, and we're talking about somebody that can easily make $100,000 a month for maybe three to four months. That's the kind of money that a TV writer makes. And that's just an average TV writer. That's not somebody that's some super experienced, brilliant person. Some of those people they bring in, they make even more than that. So that's an enormous amount of money. But you're talking about somebody that in in the TV writer world, they're, they're literally in, 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 in like a conference room for like 14 hours. I'm serious. These people don't don't work less than ten hours. They often work twelve hours. Cigarette smoking, coffee drinking, sandwich eating, horrible lifestyle. People that literally that's all they do. Maybe go take a drink at the bar, go home, go to sleep, and go do it again. Four, five, six, seven days sometimes. Some of them literally write the entire week because they're responsible for putting out anywhere between fifteen and twenty five shows. That's what they have to do over the course of anywhere from like three to four months. You're literally locked in doing that. That's why they give you that kind of money. <laughs> it's not fun. It's not healthy. You, you can't even like get your name on the thing. 
You know? I mean, but you're on the show. It's important. It's giving you an enormous amount of money. But it's an entirely different writing experience that you would ever, ever encounter. In fact, it's different than any other writing experience out there. Your TV writer. Nothing like it. And when people hear about that, they, they're horrified because they're like, what the? Yeah, that's what it is. Okay? Big money. Going to need an agent later on. Going to need to be part of the guild. But that's the life you have. Me, I, I wouldn't want that at all. And it's not worth what they would be paying for. That's why you only have certain people that do that. I don't even know how these how these people even have marriages. To be honest with you, I really don't. When do you see your kids and your wife? When literally you're working like twelve hours a day, then you're over there hanging with people, networking. You want to go back with the writers to the bar. You want to try to keep contact with people. They become like not only your friends, almost like your family. But guess what? You already have a family, so you can see socially how this how this works. It's rough stuff. Rough life. Some of them burn out after just doing that three, four years. They want to go do something else because it's just, and there's no, there's no script doctoring like there is screenplays and, and teleplays. It's just those people doing it, period. So there's no other way of doing this. There's only two ways. You're the TV writer in that room or you're the spec script writer, hoping to God that someone's going to pick up your script and hoping to God you're so good that you can write bunches of them all over the place because that's the only way you're ever going to get any money. That's the only way agents are ever going to get really interested in you. And one day that could stop. Or one day they might stop taking your script saying, we'd like you to come on board. Because to them, they, they feel that you're definitely someone that could be over there. So rough, rough life, I'll tell you. All right, next. And one of the final ones in this whole thing is the screenplay. Here's something, again, quite unique than any other writing. This is uh, a form of writing that hasn't changed in terms of its format in over 100 years. It's the same format they were using during the talkies when they were doing scripts. In fact, you're going to encounter agents that literally will do two things. They might like it because they'll allow you to email it, or they might literally demand, listen, I, I, need you to, I need you to bind this. And what binding means is that you're printing out this, I don't know, two-hour manuscript. Oftentimes, it's going to be about... I, I'd say anywhere from like, you know, 90 to 120 pages long. Okay. Two hours, roughly two hours. Okay. Has to be in that exact format. You have to make three copies of it. It has to be bound with three holes. You have to put uh, brass fasteners, which by the way, you got to go find them in stores. Most damn stores don't even sell brass fasteners anymore. Half the time you just got to buy this on the internet. Imagine having to buy something on the internet for something you're writing. with. It's amazing, but that's the truth. Some of them might still demand it that way. And if there's somebody that has huge contacts, and they do, you might have to go with that. And in some cases, believe it or not, they will literally tell you, we'll go get this taken care of. And if we get this thing sold, we're going to take that out of your money. Because what will happen is, and you'll see this on the internet, there are actually services that do that. And this is what a lot of screenplay writers do. They don't even waste their time doing this anymore. They'll literally just take the screenplay they did on Final Script or all the other different programs that are being used, They'll shoot that over through the email to an actual company. They will actually produce how many you want. The standard is three. You can ask for 10 if you want. They'll produce that per fee, and you pay them, and then they, they really mail it back to you. Now you have something in your hands that's professional that you go send out to an agent or even directly to, to, a, to a, a Hollywood studio. Some of them will still take unsolicited manuscripts. Sometimes they'll take it through the email. They'll have you to sign a disclaimer saying that, you know, if we ever produce a movie that looks like yours, you can't sue us. I know that that's unfortunately part of that. And but some will say, no, we want the we want the script. So I can't really give you the advice of if you should do this ahead of time or not, because it costs money to, to get these scripts bound. Okay, it's not cheap, it's not super expensive, okay? But it does cost money, and there's no guarantee that you need that. Some screenplay writers I knew they just do it as a standard habit. They literally have an account at one of these companies. Here's my next one. Boop. Thank you for sending it back to me. And they turn around pretty quick because they understand the nature of what's necessary. So these people will charge you, and you'll have a script back within the end of the week. I mean, literally, two-day mail. I mean, they don't play. You're sending it to them instantaneously. It's just getting it on the mail back. But it's extremely valuable if this is the way you need to go. And this is what you want to do. Now, more and more of them are taking the email. Some of them, though, will then demand in the email that it's in that particular uh, program that they want to use. They might say, yeah, we'll take it by email, but it better be in final script. 
or it better be in this program or this program. Some will take it on Word. They're like, hey, I'll take it on Word, but you better make sure that this is in the screenplay template. It's better be screenplay ready to go. It means that this is not some weird thing you decided to, you know, to come up on yourself. It's a great story, man. I'm sorry I didn't do it by screenplay uh, format. No, 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 no. This is Hollywood. They are religious about that format. Do not deviate. Ever. Even the agents who actually, if they actually think you're interesting a uh, story and you want to send them some crap like that, they'll literally tell you. And I read some of this and I, I think it has some merit, but you better get this into the right format because that's not my job to do. That's your job. Get back to me when you're done. I mean, you can have that happen. That would actually not be a good thing because they expect you to already know this. You're already supposed to research this. So I'm telling you right now, that's what's absolutely necessary. Don't play games with that. The cool thing about those writing programs is they already do that for you. They set it up that way. So therefore, um, the file that you create is already set up a screen a screenplay format, and then you can go send it over to the Hollywood person or the agent. Or if you want, you can hit the print button. If you actually have, I don't know, enough ink and, and about 200 pages in your printer, or if it hasn't blown up afterwards, because it happens sometimes. You're trying to get through halfway this thing, and it conks out on you. I can't tell you how many screenplay writers have told me this, but it'll print it out perfectly for you. And you can go by section by section to make sure you line up on your three-hole puncher, which if you don't have one, you're going to have to go buy one, okay? Not expensive, probably like 20 bucks. Line it up correctly, then you got to get those brass fasteners. You can't find them in the stores. They still sell them at Walmart last time I checked, but hey, the world changes so fast, they might not even have them anymore. They're always going to have them on the internet, I can tell you that, okay? They're used for a lot of science fair experiments and, and stuff like that. I actually used them myself when I was young. Uh, and you're going to need those as well. Okay? Next thing you'll need on something like this, and this is even before, this is even before you you go to the agents, you're going to want to go to the guild. You don't actually have to be a screenplay uh, screenplay uh, matter uh, member and pay that $2,500 to $5,000. It could literally be that expensive. You don't have to be that way to do that because many times you're going to find out that the guild they won't even take you anyway even if you have the money until you at least have an option so you don't have to worry about that but they have their own service where for five years they'll catalog your screenplay you can send it by email they'll catalog it and give you a special number and you can use that number when you're giving, giving it to your agent and or if you're sending it over to the um, to the studio that number pretty much protects your screenplay Nobody can mess around and steal it because it's now been registered and you're good to go. I know that copyright has a law in effect that's supposed to cover you from all that, and generally it does. But where it concerns screenplays, there can be so much money involved if somebody really wants your work that you just don't want to go with a regular copyright. I don't care how you think it's important. Get registration from the Writers Guild of America, period. Like 25 bucks. It lasts five years. They give you that number. You put that standard in your number when, you, when you're writing the, the agent, whether you email the agent or you're sending them a letter. Now, the letter for the screenplay agent is not the same thing as a novel like we were talking about before where I really think you should just do it by the mail. Uh, the screenplay agents, there's only so many of them out there. And they don't really care if it's an email. or They're not going to be that more impressed, so you don't have to really worry about that. You could just email them. Really what they're concerned about is what they call the log line, okay? So after you tell them who you are and how you got the script registered, the log line is simply sometimes one or two sentences that's telling them an idea of your movie as it plays in the context of other movies that have done okay. Remember, they're the same way as book publishing. They're not interested for some genius idea. You can't give them, no one's ever seen this screenplay before. Oh my God, Einstein would be impressed. No one gives a crap. You won't impress them. They'll hit the delete button or they'll probably just say, we're not interested and have a good day. So please don't do that, all right? The log line, what they're looking for, this is called the log line. This is what this is, okay? Hey, um, uh, Mr. Agent, my, uh, my screenplay here is sort of a mixture between uh, Reservoir Dogs, okay? And the Da Vinci Code. What the hell? But right there. You're giving them at least two different movies. Sometimes even three. But you don't want to get too carried away. Two is really what they're looking for. 
two different kind of movies that your your your, your movie actually might be kind of related to, taking some variation of a theme on something like that. That gets their attention. Then you can give them. In some cases, they want everything up front. Give them the whole screenplay, your logline pitch, all that crap. And other times, they just want that. Because they're so busy, they're literally just looking at various loglines. Oh, I'm going to take out these five. Let me contact these people. Let me go see their script right now. So they might get 50 you know, pitches, and maybe they're picking five. And now they want to invite you, and you send it over. It's the very same situation, folks, okay, as the book. Be ready. Have it done. Have your plan going. The only thing is it's not like a book is they don't care about social media. That doesn't mean anything to them. You could be a hermit crab in a, in a cave someplace just writing scripts. They don't care. They don't even care if you, you, you're an expert on whatever you're writing about or not. Who the hell is? Are you an expert on vampires? No. Huh? You're some genius on werewolves? No, I don't think so. Huh? You know, uh, yeah, I know all about gay aliens. No, you, nobody does. Okay? So they don't care about that. It's not the same thing as a book. All right? Because it's completely about fantasy. It's completely about something interesting. Even when you're writing something that's nonfiction as a script, even when it's a drama and it's not a fantasy or science fiction, it's still baloney because it's made to be dramatic. It's going to not have every piece of truth out there. So they're expecting that. They're not expecting if you write a story about nurses that you're supposed to be a nurse. They, they would expect that you did some research you know, about the situation so at least the, the damn thing sounds plausible. Okay. But they're not expecting to see that on any kind of any kind of resume. More times than not, you don't even have a resume for screenwriting. And you just got to say that. This is the log line. This is what it's about. After that, you can give a little short synopsis about it. It's available. I'm ready to go. It's been registered. But the cool thing about being registered is, is, is three things, okay, for the agents. First of all, they know the damn script is ready to go because you're not going to register something that's not. You really can't, actually. You got to have the damn thing ready. So that automatically tells them, this is ready. This is protected. This person is taking this stuff seriously. Don't matter if they got any options or credits yet. Fine. Let's see what they got. So that's pretty much how that works in a nutshell. Now, don't forget, agents are also the ones in screenplays that can get you additional work that you can't get in any other writing field. Okay? Screenplays are the only screenplays are the only field where you can literally get money for getting an option, which means that you're paying, they're paying you to take it off the market, but they're not making your movie, okay? They get the option again. They might have a contract where they have a second object. They're paying you again, again, for taking it off the market. Then they might come back and say, you know, we're ready to do this now, and then they got to pay you a third time. Also, while all that's happening, you're working on another screenplay. Guess what? Your agent's like, all right, now, you're, you're in the time where they're taking you seriously now. You've been second options. Guess what? They like you to try to do some what they call script doctoring. They give you like $25,000 for 60 days of work. They'll send you a, a script or two. Go look at this. Try to change this. Go fix that. They might even have a few directions for you. Sometimes they don't. Hey, we'd like to look at this, do this, and they pay you for that. The agent, of course, loves for you to get that work. The agent is getting 15% of that. So they love to get you that. A lot of times, the screenplay writers, that could be literally a, a bulk, if not literally all of the money they make that year. Other than the option. But you remember, you, you get some option, it gets you in the door. You'll get a lot of the script acting work. You're making some money. You're, hopefully, you're trying to rig another script or two on the side and go through that whole thing all over again. It can be a bit of a twilight zone, but this is what they do. You know, the only problem with something like this is that uh, more than any other I field or the other writing fields, if you happen to tell somebody, yeah, I write screenplays as a living. First person is going to you know, what, what movie did I see on that? That's what they're going to say. You can't tell them it's been optioned, but they're not making it yet. Nobody cares. So a lot of screenplays, writers can be very shy about that sort of thing. You know? Or they might just say, I work for a, a film studio, and I simply do editing of the scripts. I got my own stuff out there. Hopefully one day I'll get produced. At least that's not only truthful, but at least that's something that it's kind of plausible and you know, then invite a whole bunch of questions or people just think you're a, a complete weirdo or something. Okay. But that's really the life of, of a screenplay writer and as a whole is they're hoping for that kind of work. They're hoping to have an agent that has enough connections to get some of the stuff out there. And unlike a novelist, which can literally afford 
to write a novel, wait a year or two as they're writing another novel slowly, and then because they usually have another job or something like that in the meantime, it's a different life for a screenplay writer. You already have to have two, three, four, five, six screenplays either done or in the midst of being done to even be taken seriously. Because the first thing your agent is going to say is, all right, I got to go on option. What do you got for me next? Well, I don't know, man. Um, I'm still like in the beginning stages of one. I'm like, what? They, they can't be waiting around there for like six months or a year for you to come up with something else. They're, they're trying to throw stuff out there. Especially if they got you out there, they don't want to talk about you right away. Billy Johnson, we just optioned him. He's got another one. Why don't you go check this out? You got that studio over there afraid. Oh, it's what you got. What do you got to do for them? What do you can do for them? Because remember, they're salespeople too. So more than all the other genres combined, you know, you, it's hard, in my opinion, to go out there without at least having two. Screenplays already done. That's how I started doing it, literally. Got an option. Nothing ever got made. I got a couple more I'm working on. That's what you do. You got to have a couple in there all the time. Because when they ask, you can't just say, yeah, I'm still working on it. Unless you're like maybe you're a week away or something, they don't care. You, you just sound like you're, you're a hobbyist or something. You're going to take this seriously. You got to be like a machine and, and have a, the next step ready to go. Okay? You're moving down the assembly line. They just install the doors. Then the robot installs the windshield. And dude comes over, checks out the carburetor. The girl goes, hits the tires. That's what you're doing. That's what they're expecting. It's not unusual, and it's actually pretty darn common for the average screenplay writer to have at least three or four projects already out there. And I don't mean out there in terms of just being considered. I mean out there in all the categories. I got four out there, Mark. One is options. One is on the second option. One, actually, they got bought, but I'm still waiting for them to see what they're going to do next. You know, because when they buy it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's getting made tomorrow. Just because they give you the check, you might never hear from them again at the end of the story. You don't even know when the hell it's going to come out into the theater. That could be two, three years later. could be five years later. Hell, sometimes your agent don't even know. That's how mysterious it can be. Plus, you got a couple that you're in submission that they try to send to other people to be reading right now. Those are the sort of things they have to get. You literally have to have all these balls juggling around the same time. Because... That's where the money is for you to be able to sustain yourself to keep doing this because screenplays, street plays more than anybody else or more than any other genre out there can pay the money that you can actually live on, period, without ever having to do anything else again. Just screenplays all the time. Plus, you're doing that script doctoring work. You probably take a couple of assignments of those a year. I mean, you only need two of those assignments a year and you already got $50,000. But oftentimes, people do more. And believe it or not, they don't do more because they want to enrich themselves. A lot of times, screenplay writers do more script acting because they're not looking to disappoint the agents, especially if the agent's on the hook of the studio, and they don't want to piss off the studio. That might be the studio that picks up your project one day. You know, the last thing you want them on their mind is, yeah, that's the dude that just rejected my script doctrine, but you know, he wants us to spend $10 million on a movie. How nice. So you don't want them thinking like that. So a lot of times, these they take the assignments regardless. You know, and they do whatever they can for him and send it back. You know, they, they, you get a lot of money for that, just doing whatever. So, nothing wrong with that. It is a job for the most part that can be remote. But like I mentioned on the morality of markets, it's also a job that more studios than not still want the old-fashioned pitch, meaning, hey, Mark, we're seriously considering your screenplay. So we're going to fly you down next week, put you in a hotel, we'll put you in front of five or six of the producers, directors, our consultants, believe it or not, they have film consultants, whatever, out there, and you're going to sit there or even stand, usually just stand, and then tell them what the screenplay is all about. So if you wrote something that you didn't think you were a master of in your cover letter, damn, you better be a master when you tell these people that because you now have to sell it in person. And that right there, that's a make-or-break moment, period. There's no second chances. They're probably lined up to see 10, 15, 20 people. Okay? And why are they doing that? Because they have a budget. They have a time span. They have things that they need to do in terms of people, equipment, everything else that says to them, listen, in this particular fiscal quarter, 
we want to put out four movies. So there could be 15 people in there that day, and there's only four people that are going to get picked. That's provided they're even sold that the four people are good enough for them. They might want to call more in, which, which happens too. So that has to be done. Nothing fun about it. Not a whole lot of books about how the hell to sell your movie. You get a couple tips here and there, but I don't think anyone really can tell you anything about how to do it, really. Because it's all, to me, all phony knowledge in the end. It doesn't matter how you talk. It doesn't matter what the hell you're wearing. Hell, you could probably be naked if all, if all they care. What it matters is not even that you showed up. What matters is that you can sell them with conviction. That's right. With passion, what your project's about. And I don't care if your project's about a dog that has alien contact and now has secret knowledge, but nobody believes the dog because the dog can't talk. But the dog is actually really intelligent because of the alien contact. You better believe the hell in that alien dog or that alien-inspired dog. No different if it's the nurse's story or a comedy, which I don't know how the hell you sell a comedy. This movie is funny, man. Let me tell you some of the jokes. I don't even know how to begin on that one. At least I know on some of the other ones, the genre ones, like the fantasy, the science fiction, horror, which is really cool, or drama. You can have you have enough invested in that thing. You read it over a number to yourselves. You remember some of the notions you have in it that you could convey to them what's going on with that. And you could sell it with them with conviction in your heart and your and your soul that this is something that they should do. All right, folks, until next time, I'm going to wish you uh, well uh, during these uh, unsafe times. Please be careful out there. All right, I, I do say uh, God bless. Uh, we'll probably do another show similar to like this in, in, in the near future, not necessarily about agents, but another important facet of writing. Until next time, you take care and thank you. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.